I don't think it's by accident that mercy is placed above the law. This is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt, and with me today we have Tracy. Good morning. And so I don't hurt Karen's feelings this week, Karen. Oh, hey. Thanks for noticing I'm here. <laughs> and we've got Eric. Hey there. <laughs> Eric, your hurt feelings aren't hurt for being last, are they? We'll bring that up later. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of a cloudy... It looks like it's going to rain day outside, and that's going to be interesting for us because we are supposed to be having drive-in church today, and I uh, don't know how that's going to work out. We'll see how that goes later. But in the meantime, we're going to get into our study today. Actually, we need to finish up chapter three, 23 of Exodus just a little bit because um, we were just kind of running long last week, and we had discussed, we had finished discussing some different annual feasts that they would have of uh, unleavened bread or Passover. They would have a feast of harvest and they would have a feast of ingathering. And there was lots of stuff about not having uh, leavened bread in there. And we finished off by talking about not boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. And none of us knew what that really meant. Just uh, kind of odd. But that chapter ends up with talking about, says the angel and the promise, promise says, I should say, and God is telling him that his angel is going to lead the people. And this angel needs to be obeyed. And uh, he says in verse 21, says, Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. I thought that was kind of an interesting statement there, that my name is in him. Because every time I'm seeing this here, that word angel is, is capitalized, which is indicating to me that this really is God himself uh, leading the people. And this is something to be followed and respected. It says uh, in verse 23, his angels will cut off their enemies and they're warned not to worship any other gods. We've already talked a lot about that through the Ten Commandments and through lots of issues of idolatry coming all through this, through the, through the Old Testament up to this point. Oh, and they're talking about completely overthrowing them, over, completely overthrow their gods. Just... Not basically just don't pay any attention to them at all. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And will take sickness away from the midst of you. Now, we've talked about that before. You know, Are we to believe that there was nobody ever getting sick within millions of Israelites kind of wandering through the desert? I wonder, how, I wonder what that means a little more specifically, or if it's literal. Maybe, maybe nobody got sick. I don't know. The part I thought was the most interesting in this whole... Um, angel going before them kind of thing was the part where God just says flat out, I'm going to use this means and that means and this other means to drive out the people ahead of you and mm -hmm. I'll do it slowly so mm -hmm. that you are ready to expand when they are gone, right? So he didn't, like he was, he used all kinds of methods mm -hmm. and and then he was just going to do it little by little. He says, um, verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. Like, I'm not going to give you millions of acres to care for until you're actually there and you're settled and you've expanded and you're ready for that. 
So it was just kind of like, you know, I, I, I don't remember ever reading that text before, but I remember reading the story of them sort of coming into the promised land and some of the stuff that happened just seemed so crazy to me. And it was like, they, they got there. This is supposed to be the promised land. And yet they spent years and years and years trying to establish themselves. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. well, you, you've got a group of people who are still learning. I mean, 40 years is a long time, but I mean, at this point, they're still learning how to function as, as a society. They don't really know. And if God was just to dump them onto land and say, here you go, become this nation, become this, this, this superpower, I don't think it would have gone well. I think it probably would have gone pretty bad. Well, here's an interesting, this is interesting to me anyways, is that in 28, in chapter 23, verse 28, God says he's going to send hornets. Yeah. <laughs> Which I find Murder hornets? Yeah, probably so, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which I find uh, fascinating in that here's the thing. Contrast this to what actually happened. What happened is they got to the border. They sent in their spies, and the spies said, we can't do it. Now, here God specifically says, I will do it. Mm-hmm. I will, I will, I will. And when they got to the border, they said, we can't. Right. And it's an interesting thing is that it went from God saying, I will send hornets before you. Because seriously, I mean, if you lived in an agrarian culture, I don't know how many years ago this is, 4,000 years ago, give or take here, that you couldn't, you wouldn't have defense against hornets. You wouldn't have hornet spray. You wouldn't have pheromone stuff you could deal with. You, you couldn't seal up your, your houses. You know, they're open to the weather. You would have to leave. I mean, if bajillions of hornets showed up, you would have to just say, okay, they win, we leave. And they would have, le- mm-hmm. they would have left the buildings and the towns completely intact. Because why would you tear it down, right? Just get out of Dodge. Yeah. yeah. And instead, they got to the border and they said, we can't do it. We're going to have to fight these guys. And then they go back and wait for 40 years in the desert. That whole generation dies off except for Caleb and Joshua. And then when they show up again, they have to fight. Their, their shot at having God push these people out with hornets is gone. They missed their chance. Mm. And now they have to do battle. I thought that was... I, too, Karen, like you, I'd kind of missed this part before. And the vast implications this has for their takeover of Canaan, they could have just walked in mm-hmm. to town. And they go, oh, you take right. that house. I'll take this house. This will be awesome. And they just. Yeah, basically somebody hands them the keys. <laughs> yes, literally. You know, I think that's that was that's the whole key to this entirely is that God said he would do it for them. 11 days turned into 40 years, turned into a whole generation that had to be basically gotten rid of because they couldn't see past themselves. And when God said, I will do everything for you, they couldn't comprehend it. Where, you know, I was looking back, especially at um, 25, when you were talking about sickness, you know, you look back there, there was no antibiotics there was no anything like you know medicinal stuff besides just what homeopathic and naturopathic stuff that there was so any kind of sickness could run rampant among a million people that were confined together right if you look at it i think the sickness was literal nobody got sick there until if you look at it when uh, miriam speaks out against moses what do you have she gets leprosy 
So, you know, I think it was almost a literal thing where these sicknesses weren't running rampant. But you know what? There was still um, evidence of, you know, if you cross the line with with God, there's going to be ramifications. And it's going to look odd because there wasn't that sickness there. But, you know, in looking at it, they just missed the mark. They missed the boat every single time about trusting God. And we've said it over and over that they had a pillar of fire. They had smoke. They had, you know, um, everything to let them know that God was there, all the wonders and the miracles. And yet they still couldn't they couldn't fathom it. Mm-hmm. Um, that I do think, I do think, um, I, I agree, Tracy. I do think it's literal illness that they're talking about. And it reminds me of a thing that God says to them later. He says, it's not in Exodus. It's, it's kind of after the, the 40 years. And he says, don't you remember? So it's something like, don't you remember in the wilderness, your clothing didn't wear out. Your sandals yep. didn't wear yep. out for years. Yep. So like, they were sort of suspended from the normal wear and tear of human health and this and that and the other thing. Exactly. To that point, they just missed the boat. Who wouldn't know yeah. that the shoes didn't wear out in 40 years? That'd be, I can't I'd, go, I'd buy that kind for my kids. I'm telling you, I can't make no it you know, a couple months. And I'm like, okay, I need a new pair. This is ridiculous. Well, I, I kind of like shoe shopping, so I'm just going to be like, if that was me and I had to wear the same shoes for 40 years because I had to be practical, I might actually be just a tiny bit disappointed. That's not um, fair, Karen. <laughs> Macy's. I, I'm just saying Macy's, one word. Um, but the other thing that, that gets me about this is I, I spend a lot of time, when I think about theology and the gospel and stuff like that, I spend a lot of time thinking about God's plan A and plan B. Like plan A was that here's humanity, here's a perfect world, here's your free will, now do the right thing, right? That was plan A. And then plan B is, oh, well, you didn't do the right thing. So now here's the re- here's the salvation and reparation plan, right? And then, and I, and I think that that applies to our entire planet. And I think that that applies to vast civilizations throughout periods of history. And I think that that applies to specific nations, all of the nations in slightly different ways. And I think that applies to cultures and subcultures and families and individuals and it makes me wonder <laughs> what was god's plan a for me and mm. am i down to plan z yet <laughs> and are we gonna run out because <laughs> i feel like maybe maybe i'm not doing i mean i can't distrust god's plan for me i mean we, we read here in exodus he has this brilliant plan for the israelites to walk in and take over the promised land without pain and mayhem and then they can't hold their end of that situation up. And so it moves on to the next idea. Like, how many times has that happened in my life? And I never knew, you know, if if I got to see behind the curtain and God showed me what plan A for my life was, I bet I'd be pretty disappointed in myself. The same way I read all of these stories in the Bible and I kind of roll my eyes and, oh, my goodness, how could they not see it? What What on earth have I not seen? <laughs> well, and it's funny that we talk about how they they missed being able to just walk in and do the things If just, if they would have just followed God's instructions, it would have gone so much easier for them because the very next chapter, it begins with them basically saying, we will do everything God says. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they have this pattern of this. And I guess if I'm going to be honest, I do too. The pattern of, 
okay, God, I'm going to do what you want. I want to, I'm going to turn my life around and everything I'm going to do is going to be what you said to do. And I know it's going to be awesome because you're in charge. And so let's go. And then I turn around and do the opposite. Yep. Yeah. As you're thinking about that, as you, as you mentioned that, Matt, I think it's worth pointing out because this is really important because a lot of Christians today feel that in the Old Testament, they were saved by or operated under this, this thing of rules, that that's how they were saved. That was, that was the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they were, they were um, under a new genre, let's say, because of literature background, and that's grace. But what, is, what, it, what in the world is the end of 23 if it's not grace and faith? God's saying, I will. I, I actually highlighted those while we were talking. I mean, he says, I will, 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 I will. At least I might have missed some. Hmm. What part of that did the Israelites have? They just had to believe and say, okay, like that would tell me that that's faith. That is 100 percent grace, i.e. God doing it and faith, them believing that God will do it. Mm -hmm. And as we move into these rituals and this other stuff, basically, it's I would propose that this is just a symbol of them saying, we accept what you're going to do for us. Right. And now we take mm -hmm. these actions based on our faith. Right. Mm -hmm. That was that again, to your point, Karen, that was plan a, that they have this faith and that the sacrificial system was symbolic of the coming savior mm -hmm. and their participation in it was indeed faith because if it wasn't faith, then we have to believe that actually the slaughtering of lambs was appeasing an angry God and all right. he needed was enough blood and then he's okay. Right. You know, it's either a symbol, these things are symbolic or they're literal. And God says, well, if you make all these things just right with me and you, you, you kill enough animals, then, okay, then I'll forgive you. Mm -hmm. uh, I think What's that section mean? What is that text in Micah? Something about, should I be satisfied with rivers of blood or rivers of oil? Or what is that? Hang on. I don't know. I was thinking of your, is, is it not to do justice and love mercy and walk? That's where it ends. Yeah. yeah. That's where it ends. Let's see. So, Karen, while you're looking that up, let's, let's look at 24. And I have a question for you all. Moses is gathering, and let's not miss this. Um, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 other elders. Because Nadab and Abihu, their name shows up later, and they're basically saying, we get left out. And here mm -hmm. they are, right in the core, being included, not left out. Not left out. And so Moses, this is in verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant, which is in caps in my Bible, and read it in the hearing of the people. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're reading what I would have thought would have been that except this didn't exist until after that what is he reading you know i was thinking if this is maybe what's talked about in verse four there because it says moses wrote all the words yep. of the lord and i'm thinking yeah yep. what did he what what was he <clears throat> writing because like you say i mean we've been we've been I, I mean we have the five first the pentateuch if you will the torah whatever you want to call it we have that yeah with these sections of it i suppose I think he yeah. was probably writing like the last few chapters of 
you know, if your animal does this, this is how you treat it. If the humans around you do this, this is how you treat it. If you do this, this is how you'll be handled. I think it was probably all of that up to kind of where we're at. Okay. That makes sense. It could be. There you go, Tracy. <clears throat> yeah, what did he say? I missed it. A work in progress. Right. Totally. Um, I found the text, by the way. So it is It is in Micah. It's Micah 6. And starting in verse 6, it says, it says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then and then he goes on to say, you know, basically, no, he has shown you, oh, man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So all of these things like craft your behavior like this, craft your intentions like that, do these things, don't do those things, guard yourselves, right? All of that is, and now we're getting into the, into the how you will worship, like what form will worship take for these people in this era, in this time and place. And that's what we're about to get into. But still the intentions are the same. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Yeah, that's Micah 6, six yeah. 7, and 8, right? Yeah, 6, 7, and 8. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we mentioned that these guys, we'll say Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, they're all named again uh, when we get to verse 9. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they get to go. At, it says they saw the God of Israel. Yes, I'm curious to know if this is literal, because there are times when God says, I'll, you know, he's like, I'll show you my back, because if you were really to look at me, you wouldn't be able to stand it. Yeah, coming up on that. Yeah. And so to say that these these men were able to literally see him just has me wondering what that what that means, what it looked like. You know, is this a what they call it a Christophanes when when we have a, a, a an Old Testament presentation of Jesus? I think it is because John yeah. says in in the New Testament says no man has seen God, mm-hmm. and yet we have them seeing God. And I had that noted too in my notes. I'm like, so who did they see? Because there is when God in His God the Father you know shows up in all His glory. I mean, like Moses was the he was kind of it. He was the first, you know, first round draft pick, you know, of all of mm-hmm. all the people in the Old Testament. And even, and even he, as you said, Matt, could only see God's back. And so this, I think, I think it is. I think it's, I think it is them seeing Jesus. Because they sit in, it was really interesting. They ate and drank. I mean, they have a kind of a banquet with him, which is uh, really I don't know. I, I just find that really it's important to remember that that's happening here because we often think that the God of the Old Testament is only thunder and lightning and, and strife and right. swinging the big sword and all this other stuff. And yet he sits down and has they eat and drink w- with with him, which is pretty mind blowing and not the traditional picture of the Old Testament God. How do I, how do I get, how do I get there? Like what mountain do I have to climb? <laughs> <laughs> have a, have dinner with I do. Jesus. Yeah, I want to. Yeah. It's pretty well, crazy. Pretty awesome. Um, Abraham, I think he was still Abram, had done this too. Yes. When, you know, he 
go prepare a lamb. You know, remember that story. And yeah. uh, he had been able to sit down and have dinner with God and a couple of the angels. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just, just, it's amazing. I mean, we think about, I don't know, you guys ever been able to had the opportunity to see a celebrity face to face? You know, not just on TV or yes. maybe not like a concert, but when you're, you know, you're in a place and you're, and you're actually there with somebody that you have seen hundreds of times maybe on tv or whatever yes. you're able to yes. shake their hand talk to them it's kind of a surreal experience now that of course you know you quickly are able to realize this is just a human being uh, but there's still a surreal aspect to that of having that face-to-face -face confrontation is not the word but face-to-face -face, um encounter encounter thank you with 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 that with them so this had this was kind of amazing now it does say though that he doesn't god didn't touch any of them just he did not lay his hand but they did have this this one-on-one -on -one. amazing absolutely amazing and then we uh, and then we move on down and it seems that god is as he shows up in this different manifestation is that the glory of the lord is like a devouring fire yeah mm -hmm. well and and it and and i actually like the part where it said to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of similar to where, like in different places in the Bible, it'll, it'll say, you know, God spoke or whatever. And then it'll say, and the people heard it as if it was thunder. Mm -hmm. So there's, right. there's, I think, these different perceptions according to what people are ready for or mm, maybe what they, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say earned, but like the, let's be very clear here. The 70 that went up, the elders, they got special treatment. And the people saw God's presence as a consuming fire while the elders sat down and had lunch. So there's a, there's very, there are definitely differences going on here. Sure. Now, this is also where we finally get that imagery of Moses getting the tablets of stone. Yeah. So um, I don't remember. Oh, no, it does say. I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So this is stuff that was literally written by God's own hand onto stone for the people to see. This is after Moses had already heard it and the people had been below as he was receiving that. So this is where we get that that specific imagery from. It says that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And we'll eventually get to where the people below got uh, kind of nervous about that and uh, started to behave badly because of it. You know, but you have to look at it. I mean, this is a lot of information that he was getting. Oh, yeah. You know, and, it, and it's specific and orderly and everything else, you know, along with that. But I always I went back to that. And, and what I have down is that, you know, I kind of looked at it as like a family. That, you know, Moses got up after eating, after, you know, being with the elders, eating with God. And the first thing, him and his assistant, which I it says directly in there that Joshua went up with him even farther up the mountain. But mm -hmm. I always like it. And I kind of look at it as a family because when I leave the house, what do I always say? You know what? If anything goes wrong, you need to you need to call the grandparents or you need to do something. And Moses put out provision for that. You know what? If anything happens or anything goes on. Aaron and her are there, get with them. So it was like almost like the leader that was still saying, you know what, I'm making plans for my family. 
anything goes wrong, while I'm gone, see these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's get into chapter 25 here. It begins right off where God is asking for offerings. But I found this interesting where he doesn't command the people to give him stuff. He asks for, I guess we would call it a free will offering. Within, within guidelines, it has to be usable for the project at hand. Yes, yes, because there is a project, a big project that's coming up, and it's going to take, it's going to take, some, uh, it's going to take some resources. But nobody is being required to, to do it. I thought that was interesting, all these people being led through Israel, specifically by God, and God is still saying, I would like you to do this, but I'm not going to make you do it. Yeah, there's an interesting story it's 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 a it's a fictional reenactment but along these lines it talks about this there's there's two families you know israelite families and one's like oh can we give mom and dad it's like kids and like yes let's do this and they and they and they they go and give right away right and there's another family who's like well i don't know that's a lot i don't know if we should give that and then at some point i don't think it's actually in 25 moses says that's enough okay we've already got enough stuff don't bring any more and then the second family decides, okay, we'll give. And then they got told, no, I'm sorry, we already have enough. And the first family says, that's so awesome. The stuff that we gave now is part of the mm-hmm. tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Like We have a part in the tabernacle. And the second family kind of goes away sad, like, oh, we, we don't get to have what we you know, could have given to be part of God's work. And I don't know, that always just kind of stuck with me, like, yeah. That was an interesting paradigm of of giving up versus being able to contribute in a in a tangible way to a legacy project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and I yeah. and I I like speaking of Plan A and Plan B. Back when the Israelites were still in Egypt, God tells them, you know, ask the Egyptians for stuff, and right and. And, and this is how you will plunder the Egyptians. So when I read this list of stuff that they, that they bring as an offering, all I can think is that's what they've been hauling around in the, in the wilderness. Me too, Karen. That struck me too. I'm like, wait a minute. These are tent-dwelling refugees? And then they, they, they pull out all this elaborate stuff out of their pocket? I'm like, okay, I had maybe an incorrect picture of what was happening. Apparently, I'm supposed to take a bag of precious stones with me wherever I go, or like just random bits of gold if I want to actually be prepared. So I don't know. Just first of all, this is this is Plan A. Like God knew this was going to happen. He knew that they were going <clears> to <throat> build a tabernacle and that He wanted it to be special. And that in order for it to be special, He had to have these certain things in their hands so that they could bring it as an offering. And He knows this back in Egypt, and so He says, "Ask the Egyptians for stuff." And then they're prepared. Yeah. Well, there is a specific thing that's talked about first off. And I know Eric has been excited to talk about this for a while. And we just haven't been getting to it week after week. And honestly, I'm kind of excited about it, too, because I can remember back as a kid seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark. And as a kid, I didn't understand, I think, that that Ark was a real thing. You know, when I would think of the word ark as a kid, I would think Noah's ark. I mean, what 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 does that mean, you know? But we get we get told specifically that they're going to build this this box. 
and it's gonna if you if you want to know what the thing looked like, you get a pretty good representation of it from from Indiana Jones. It it's it's probably pretty accurate, maybe a little more elaborate. I don't know. I don't know what kind of um, tooling pro- uh, capabilities they would have actually had. That uh, pretty pretty amazing. But, In fact, I, I was just talking to my dad, and he said that he he was talking about King Tut's death death mask. Mm-hmm. And he said he got to see that in the Cairo Museum years and years ago. He said it was the most beautiful man-made object he had ever seen in his life. Mm. Okay, so that was oh. then. And these people were probably the ones who were doing that. That's true. And God called the most skilled people to do this. It was probably amazing. I mean, like beyond our comprehension, amazing. Well, I guess before we go too far into that, I need to point out something here in verse 9, because God is telling him specifically how all this stuff is going to go. And he says, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So God had shown Moses something that was showing him exactly what all this stuff was supposed to look like, how it was supposed to function, and how it's supposed to work. Yes, and I think it's this is a another thing to say. This isn't just an Old Testament curiosity. This is a thing that sh- Jesus alludes to a lot of this stuff. I'm the bread of life. Wow, where are we seeing that? In the tabernacle. The light of the world. Where are we seeing that? In the tabernacle. You know, in, in Hebrews, he is the intercessor. He's the priest. He's taking our prayers from the altar of incense and presenting them before God's throne, the mercy seat. I mean, it's, this is, this is not just some old Testament curiosity that has no more relevance to the, to Christian history. It absolutely does. I mean, the whole book of Hebrews is, I mean, the author of the book of Hebrews is laboring over this to try to convince the Israelite readership like look jesus is the fulfillment of all these things like this is a big deal right so this first thing they're talked about he's told about or we're told about anyway is this ark the ark of the testimony testimony or the ark of the covenant now it was literally a wooden box covered in gold uh, it's got rings on the side so that they could put poles through the rings to pick this thing up because eventually we're going to hear about how they weren't supposed to touch the thing and i've heard all kinds of reasons behind that that i'll be curious about but it says the testimony was supposed to go inside now we take that to be the actual tablets of stone with the ten commandments written on that there was other stuff that was going to go in there too aaron's rod would eventually go in there that had sprouted did that happen yet aaron's rod sprouting okay that's will happen We'll get to that. Other things would go in there, though. Uh, some of the um, the manna would go in there also. Right. So remember, we talked about how that stuff would melt at the end of every day. Somehow we have some that would go into the ark, and it would stay there for generations for people to see. And I didn't even know they had Tupperware back then, so that was new to me. <laughs> yeah, so physically this thing was about 45 inches long by about yeah. 27 inches tall by about 27 inches wide. So it's not super huge. Right. And I thought it was interesting. It says in the you know the box of the ark was wood overlaid with gold, but then the the cover is pure gold. And this, and that, I mean, this thing had to weigh something. It's going to be heavy. 
it's going to be heavy and and i'm i'm very curious if they process gold differently in that era than we do now because nowadays gold is fairly soft and no one would dream of making solid gold rings on the side of a thing like this that was going to carry all that weight at least i wouldn't so i'm i don't know i'm just logistically i'm kind of curious about stuff like that one of these days maybe i'll get to see it well they were they were incredible craftsmen i mean think about what they could do with rocks (laughs) the example of the, the pyramids we still can't figure out how they did it and how they fit it together and how they lined it up absolutely perfectly astronomically and fit them so tight you can't put a piece of paper in between them. Right. And that's what they could do with rocks. Can you imagine what they could do with wood that was a lot more toolable and what they could do with gold, which was malleable? You know, I I think we have undersold them, and I bet you what they made was pretty mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Well, on top of this box, we go what is called the mercy seat. Basically, I take that to be literally, it's basically a lid. But then Mm -hmm. on each side of this thing would be two cherubim. I don't know exactly what cherubim look like. but That was a question of mine. Somehow they seem to know. They have faces. Mm -hmm. They have wings. And it's like, like, how did they know? Yeah, because, you know, I've made this huge deal going on through this thing about how what we perceive as angels is not necessarily is not specifically spelled out in the Bible, but they obviously had some idea of what a cherubim looked like and everything I've ever seen of it, of course, is kind of a humanoid creature with wings, but these wings would spread out across, across the lid. And if I'm remembering right, they basically would, the wings would touch in the middle. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, and they call this the mercy seat. Now, obviously, nobody's going to actually sit on this thing, or at least no human beings are going to sit on this thing. And by seat, I don't think it means literally like chair. I think it's just because this this is essentially this is where mercy is going to sit. This is where the people yeah. would physically go to interact with God. And that's interesting to me, too, because. We get told some point at some point where like the, the 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 glory of God would rest on this mercy seat, and I don't know, it's kind of fascinating. It's really interesting. But it's um, in verse twenty-two, and I think this okay. is this this is a point that um, that I think is worth looking at is that you have the law testimony, as it said here, inside the ark, and then mm-hmm. over that you have the mercy seat. I don't think it's by accident that mercy is placed above mm. the law. Yeah. And we have God's presence showing up above the mercy seat itself mm. in between the the cherubim. So, in other words, God isn't appearing or, or dwelling in a place that can be had or taken by anyone. It is, it is space he is inhabiting. He mm-hmm. shows up in the space between the cherubim and above the mercy seat. So you can't capture that. You can't, you can't take that and defile that or, or ruin it or capture it or invoke it in that way. I mean, God is showing up in a place that can't be had, I guess is my point. Mm-hmm. Which is a very unique in that whole world because those other gods were like 
in the idol. They were in the temple. Right. They were in a stone, whatever. And God is, I think, carefully saying, I'm not in any of this stuff you make. Right. Yeah, you can come here to talk to me, but you can't stick me in your pocket and go home. That's my point. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. Well, we're told about next uh, this table for the showbread, it says. Um, I'm not quite sure what showbread means, what the, what the term means, but I think it's basically it's literally bread there to be seen. This is going to go inside. We haven't gotten to it yet, but we're going to be talking about how the temple is built and, 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 and th- where things go. But there's a literal table where bread would get put every day. And again, this is wood covered in, in gold. Um, all the dishes and all the utensils and things that go with it, they're all made of gold. And it says that in uh, verse 30, says, You shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So this thing is supposed to always have have this bread on there. And so you can assume probably it needs to be made fresh daily because bread doesn't last forever. Yep. And so this, it's the thing that has to be tended. Yeah, same now, with the lamp. They're supposed to feed it with oil and it never goes out at night. They're supposed to always, always tend it and keep it going. So there's, again, this isn't just some Old Testament God being arbitrary saying, oh, you got to do all these things and then I'll love you. For He delivered them already. Okay, so they're already under grace. Mm-hmm. And the idea of bread always being available and light never leaving them, I mean, you don't have to work super hard to see the symbolism in that. Right. Yeah. Well, because we've talked many times, and of course, you know, Jesus gets referred to all the time as the bread of life. The Israelite people would have understood what he was talking about when he said that. There's a reason yeah. why they would get so worked up when they see this human being in front of them saying that I am the bread of life. I yep. am the light of the world. They yep. all understood this imagery yep. way more than we do as Christians. We've done a as Christians, I feel like maybe we've done a disservice to ourselves by not paying more attention to what was going on in this temple. Because as we go on through things and we get into the services of the temple, we're going to see just how deeply that stuff was representing everything that was going to happen. Especially when we get into the Day of Atonement and we learn yep. about how that represents Christ's sacrifice and yep. the banishment of Satan and, and evil just being you know abolished. And the sins being taken away, we're we're, we're going to have we're going to gain such a deeper understanding of all of that and everything that Jesus did through what was going on in the sanctuary, and it's going to yeah. be an interesting discussion. But yeah, so we have this gold lampstand again. It says this is pure gold. This seems to be heavy. Um, well, about seventy-five pounds is the mass that they used mm-hmm. to make this. Yep. Yep. It's going to have six branches. Uh, each branch will have three bowls on it. It says that it will look like almond blossoms. It's a menorah. Be... There you go. There you go. You know, and, yeah, and when exactly. it says six, remember that those are branches from the central stand. So you have yes. one in the middle and you have three on either side. So you've got – Here's you mentioned it before, Matt. The number seven comes up an awful lot. Mm-hmm. And so you've got seven um, lights and that's where the menorah comes from. Mm-hmm. This is it. This is the this is this is the one <laughs> that starts all that. Mm-hmm. 
And in verse 40, again, it says this is going to be according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So this was very specifically designed, made to represent something that was happening. We've had some discussions before amongst ourselves of whether these were literal things in heaven, whether they were figurative things to to represent something that was happening in heaven. All I know is I could tell you working construction, you do not go try to build a house without a blueprint because you'll end up with a mess. If, if everybody's just thinking, oh, you know what, I think we should put a wall here and maybe we can put one over there, you can end up with a house. It's not going to be anything. It's probably not going to turn out well if you don't have a plan to begin with. And that's going to be true of, I think, probably any profession. I mean, I'm looking at Tracy. Tracy, you got to know that you know, you're know you going to have a plan for treatment for a person. You don't probably just go, hmm, I think, let's try penicillin. Let's see what happens. I don't know. You know, and, and Eric, when you're... Oh. When you're planning a video shoot, you've got an idea. In fact, I've done video shoots with you, and you've got your your list of shots that you're going to do. It's interesting that you mentioned that. And um, there is a um, – it's called the Blueprint to Salvation. I don't know if you've heard of it, but Ivor Meyer does it out of California. And he basically has this all wrapped up through the sanctuary. And basically, if you look in Psalm 7713, it goes, Thy ways, O God – is the sanctuary that all these things lead or are a representation of God in general. You know, it, it lays it all out how, you know, the showbread is basically God's living word. The, you look here, it's, it says, it is written that men, men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. And how it interacts with the sanctuary and the showbread and how all these have, you know, meanings, you know, and how God laid it out for us. Yeah, and that's it's important to note that 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 thing you just read, man shall not live by bread alone. That's a citation from Deuteronomy. Jesus didn't make that up on the spot. He's quoting Deuteronomy about himself. And so that's another reason to say, you know, the Old Testament is not I mean. Here's a friend of mine who said, you know, the, the, the only page in the Bible who shouldn't belong is the page between the Old and the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Because that gives us the implication that's like, well, there was this other way of things and then there's the new way. And Paul, among other authors, just when he whenever he makes a speech and he's appealing, when do they begin? In the Old Testament with mm-hmm. the patriarchs. He's saying like this is a continuation of all these things. As we're looking at this tabernacle here and the sacrifice, we saw a sacrifice as soon as Adam and Eve sinned. Right. Now they're wearing clothes made out of animal skins, which meant an animal had to die, which meant it had to be killed. And they were given a sacrificial system. And we have problems with Cain and Abel right out of the gate. And this is about worship and sacrifice. And when we look in Revelation... You know, the whole book of Hebrews, you cannot avoid the temple, tabernacle, priest, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you look at Revelation, a lot of, almost all of God speaking, these God, Jesus appearing, are coming out of the heavenly tabernacle. I mean, it's, so this isn't just some, you know, anomaly to, to pass by because this, this, 
I mean, Moses is shown, and I don't think it's here in our reading, but I believe it's in, in Hebrews, that, that this pattern he was shown, shown wasn't just a pattern on a piece of paper. He was shown the pattern of how it is in heaven. And so this very specific about a lot of these things, and they have meaning. I mean, the, the incense, for example. I mean, we have the, in, in Revelation, we have the prayers of the saints coming up above the uh, above the altar of incense and the saints' voices crying out from within saying, how long, O Lord? I mean, that's like straight out of the tabernacle and it's happening in heaven, in Revelation. So it isn't as if, ah, that was just for 40 years in the desert and then we're done with it. Yeah, none of this was just some kind of a random ritual for people to follow. There was very specific lessons in, in every part of it, every single sacrifice, every utensil, every every aspect of the thing was important. On this blueprint that I was kind of looking at and studying this week from his um, series, it has even the layout of, of the sanctuary. If you look at it and how things are positioned there, it's actually positioned as a cross. You know, so it gives us the whole blueprint of salvation, the way way it's all laid out. And I'm trying to pull this up just so I can have you guys see it. But I keep losing my video feed. But it is it's it's the form of a cross going working through the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. yeah. When you come in, yeah, you come in and you you have the altar and then you have the lampstand, the tables on the two sides. And then you have the holy and most holy place at the end. So, yeah. It kind of is. There's some cool. Um, I looked it up online. There's a lot of people who figured out this math, you know, of how long if <clears throat> of the tabernacle itself, which we get into in 26, which is it's basically it's a ratio of uh, three to one. Is it 15 feet high, 15 feet wide? And the holy place is, I believe, 30 feet long. And the most holy place is 15 by 15 by 15. Hmm. So. Tracy's holding that up, but it's not focusing for us yet. But you kind of see it. it. Yeah, it is. It's shape of cross. Mm -hmm. So we have oh. this, and it's interesting. It's not by accident that most of the cathedrals in in Europe and here, if you if you look at the older ones, you know, eleven, twelve, thirteen hundred, if you took an aerial view of them, they also are laid out in the shape of a cross. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that they were laid out like the tabernacle. That's That would not be a, a purely true thing. But, yeah, these things are symbolic. They have meaning. And again and again, we see it in, in 2630. You shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan that you were mm -hmm. shown on the mountain. So the building of this thing, of this tabernacle or sanctuary or eventually the temple, I guess the temple probably is more specifically what Solomon built, but all on the same pattern, but the whole thing was very ornate. You know, I, I always think of, you still think of this as people who are wandering and having to carry this thing from place to place, but it's very ornate. It's, and it's made from stuff that it's expensive stuff, linen, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. If you know anything about uh, textiles from back then, those colors were not yeah. easy to make, Ooh, you know, very hot. The dimensions of the thing, this thing was pretty big. Uh, if we look in chapter 27, it the thing, if, well, I don't know, my math, and I don't know, I'm guessing at an 18-inch cubit, 
I come up to with about 150 feet long by 75 feet wide is the whole courtyard, which was all surrounded. It was basically curtains, a, a rectangle of curtains. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just, and just then, high enough. You couldn't see over them about seven feet high. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Just just tall enough, seven, seven and a half feet tall. And so you have these curtains that are all made from this from from these these expensive uh, I shouldn't say materials. I always got my my mother-in-law used to do a lot of quilting, and, and you did not quilt with material. You quilted with fabric. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but so these well, expensive I'm not fabrics. Lie. Like, I I crochet, and when mm. I read all these things referring to different colors of yarn, I immediately my brain immediately drew a picture of everything being crocheted out of bright colors, and I was like, nope, that's horrible. Go back and redo mm. that. <laughs> know how that one look? <laughs> it, was, it was bad. Trust me. If you could see inside my brain, my imagination went. It was. It was bad. <laughs> well, I would definitely encourage our, our listeners to read through these chapters if they haven't already, because it's it's pretty specific. Specific. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very specific, and it's hard. the The only way we could really get that specific would be to just read the text out loud here, and I I don't think we want to or necessarily need to do that here. We just need to understand that it was incredibly ornate and because you might remember when we were talking Ten Commandments and I was talking about graven images in the worship place and we, we talked about how imagery associated with worship. So there's a lot of that going on here. I don't quite understand why pomegranates are so prevalent. There's a lot of pomegranates Lots in this pomegranate. thing. Pomegranates and cherubim. The cherubim... I guess sort of makes more sense just from my modern sensibilities of what churches look like. And, and, you know, you think thinking of the depictions of angels and whatnot, but, but yeah, very, very ornate, very specifically built. So when I was reading this, all I could think of was our God is a God of order, you know, down to the most minute things and rings and brass rings and gold rings. And, you know, it's all in order. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and um, more than just – go ahead, Karen. Oh, I was just going to say um, we, you were talking about how ornate it is, Eric, and it is, and it is, and it's 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 lavishly ornate. I mean this is – like they're wandering around in the desert living in tents, and this is where they're going to go worship. And where is it? It's in, it's in the New Testament somewhere where it talks about um, the priestly process. Probably Hebrews. Yeah, I think it was Hebrews, you know, which would include the robes and the sacrificial system and the temple in which it all happened. And it refers to that being as a copy and a shadow of yes. heavenly things. It's Hebrews. So it's, it's, yes, it's patterned after the heavenly things, but it is a copy and a shadow. Now, copy means basically the, the basic form of it was the same, but shadow to me means far diminished. Mm-hmm. It's not even close to the real thing, you know? So right. I kind of, I kind of, like this whole thing is scaled down, even the earthly sanctuary, you know, the, the earthly uh, temple would, when they finally got around to building one, was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. You know, and I, yeah. I think back and I look too, even when the Exodus began, the Hebrews were slaves. They didn't have this, all this stuff, right. you know, but God had provision for them enough to say, you know what, when you leave Egypt... They're going to give you all this stuff on the way out. <laughs> They're going to give you all the precious stones. They're going to give you all the gold. They're going to give you all the fabric that you need because this was ultimately the plan. Bring it out. 
It can you imagine getting? Go ahead. So sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, can you imagine getting ready to leave on this massive exodus with a caravan of people taking only what you can carry, and the Egyptians are giving you things like gold and wood and stones? <laughs> yeah, but they're going to take their cars too. <laughs> they're going to them up. And... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for the bag of rocks. Yeah, I'll carry these. These are pretty. So it's, it's along these lines in 28. And I think Matt's right. I mean, to, to get the all the detail, you just got to read it. But it's it's interesting in, in, in chapter 28. It's mentioned twice in verse two and in verse 40. It says in, in verse two, and you shall make the holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful with whom I have filled with the spirit of skill. So they're already skillful. We already know what they're capable of making in Egypt. And then God says, yeah, okay, so you take your skill and I'm going to add my skill to you. And they were made to be beautiful, which I think is, I mean, we've gone through periods of American uh, history here and, and some in Europe with this idea that God is just austere. That he doesn't really, everything should be just bland and vanilla and black and white and make it as boring as possible so that you don't get distracted. Well, that's our problem. That's not God's problem. It's because when he makes it for glory and for beauty, I mean, and I like, I like uh, tropical fish. I don't have any in a tank or anything, but I love scuba diving, snorkeling and going to aquariums. There's so much of that stuff that is just outlandishly I would propose unnecessarily beautiful. It's just beautiful because it's beautiful because I believe God loves beauty. Yeah, it is interesting how a lot of times today some of us try to make our churches very, very simple. And I wonder if we're doing justice to it. I mean, we can see some churches that are immensely ornate. You know, I would love to go see some of the churches in Europe or we just, you know, we talk about how uh, Notre Dame Cathedral was just on fire here, what, a few months ago. And, you know, those are places I would love to see. And the idea that those those things were devoted to worship for worshiping God, it's kind of awe inspiring. And but nowadays it seems like a lot of times it's like, well, we just need a place to go so we can rent a warehouse and it'll be fine, you know. Which I guess that has its place too. Yeah. But maybe maybe it wouldn't hurt us so bad to put a little more effort into the places where we worship. Yeah. Well, one thing to keep in mind too is that this was one tabernacle for the entire nation. So that's true. For, for them to contribute and to do this wouldn't make them poor. And to your point about medieval uh, cathedrals, which was a huge interest of mine for, for um, many years. Frankly, they would bankrupt the surrounding community to build these. That's, so it yeah. wasn't it wasn't as if it was a free will offering, right. because it's like right. if you don't give all this money, you're going to hell, um, and we're going to tell you how much money you're going to give. And this would take hundreds and hundreds of years to build, and they were wielded as a as a symbol and a seat of power, unlike this tabernacle that we're seeing here. And so it's a, they are beautiful and they are amazing. Um, and I think that there is something to be said to bringing God our, our best. 
And first and foremost, and we'll see this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again through the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. God's concerned with the heart. Karen just read that to us in, um, in uh, Micah 6, is that he wants first and foremost our attitudes and our hearts, and he wants the best of that. And sometimes we try to do the thing like happens in, I think it's Acts 5. It's like, well, here's my money. Here's my offering. Here's my stuff but my heart isn't with you. Mm-hmm. And God is saying, no, that's not the priority. I think he loves good things and he loves us to do our, our best and to make things beautiful. But I don't believe that doing that out of order with our heart, we got to get those right first, heart first. And then I think these other things will flow out of it. Well, I'm going to encourage our listeners if they really want to see what this thing looks like. There's all kinds of videos and things you can you can just literally just Google this, um, you know, Israelite temple or a, a tabernacle, and you can find videos and you can find uh, photos and 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 drawings and all kinds of things of what this looked like. And it is it is kind of interesting to be able to see those. And I wish I would have gone a few years ago when there was a, there was a traveling uh, sanctuary that had come through. And I, I just didn't have opportunity to go, and it would have been it would have been interesting. Yeah, I've been to some of those. They are cool, and you guys, listeners, can look them up because they travel all around the country. They do make their way around, and it's a fascinating, interesting thing. That although they were beautiful, it was simple. I mean, it was really simple. You've got you've got a building with two rooms. It's a rectangle, mm-hmm. and you have the the ark. You've got the altar of incense, the table of showbread, and a lamp. That's it in the building. You got yeah. four pieces of furniture in the whole place, and then outside you've got the the wash basin and the altar. Mm-hmm. We're, we're talking about six pieces. Of, that's it, which is in itself what a contrast to to the stuff that we feel is necessary that we've got to put all the stuff together. I mean, that is the most Spartan of. <laughs> of uh, buildings and worship centers, but they're all packed with meaning. And before we, before we leave, before we, we shut down, I think it's super cool that as part of this ministry, God takes the names of all of his people, his tribes, which again shows up all through the Bible, shows up again in Revelation, and it shows up in Precious Stones. He's putting their names right on the heart of the priest. Mm-hmm. Like those are to be right above his heart. And I just think, man, that's that's just really cool that that he this is a symbol of God holding us right next to his heart. That I would like good. to I think when we get into this, are we going to talk about the priestly garments today or are we going to dip into that next week? What are you guys thinking? I'm thinking let's get into that next week because that starts being a whole other topic, too. Yeah. Okay. And, and there's um, a lot I, there. I have a question, and I, and I want to ask all of you this, so I'm just going to ask it now, and then you can kind of think about it, because like my, my understanding of God's family structure is that the man is the high priest of the family, and I'm curious if any of you applied that to yourselves sort of as dudes in that capacity reading through this section, this chapter. So I'd be interested in your thoughts mm. on that. Is that for next week, or is that for right now, Matt? No, you're, you're, you're their time no. call. You're a time caller here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we are at about an hour here. Um, you know that might be something for us to contemplate this week because I hadn't. Honestly, I guess I hadn't put myself in that aspect. 
but she's absolutely right. We are supposed to kind of be the priest of the family. And I'm going to have to put that into the context as I go, because you think about that, putting uh, the names of the of the tribes over your heart. You know, do I keep the names of my wife and kids in that in that spot? That's something I'm going to have to think about. So to answer your question briefly, Karen, yes. And when when this when this when this was introduced to me years ago, it's not a rank thing. Because when we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet, and I think it's John 14, the highest ranking human that's ever walked the planet is a servant. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's it's totally out of whack with how we think of power. But it's it's a response. I do. I think it's a responsibility. And it. when I became a father and this kind of occurred, no, it didn't occur to me. Somebody helped me see it is that this is my thing to minister to my family and to guide my family. Yeah. Wow. It was, it was a totally seriously different thing instead of like, Hey, you're just, you're in the, in the, in the, you know, bleacher cheering. Yay. It's like, no, you're the quarterback. Mm-hmm. We're looking at you. And it's like, yeah, oh, and I think, seriously. I, I guess my impression as a woman is that there's, you know, that might apply in one way looking at children and it might apply a different way looking at a, at a wife. So I was just curious what you guys think. Absolutely. There's a mm-hmm. difference. You know, and I, my take was the same as Eric's too. And, and it took somebody else explaining this, this to me. And it, it was actually my dad that kind of, you know, alluded to this and set the whole path before me and what a great responsibility and um, that it was and how yeah. it was a, a life, undertaking work that it never it never stops and ultimately you're you're going to make mistakes but it's when you look at the heavenly father and you you basically do the best that you can do and understand that and it's almost like joseph was saying and i always go back to this is you know what uh potiphar gave me all these things except you and how can i do this in front of god and that's how I like I try to and I'm going to tell you, honestly, I fall short. Um, but everything I do, I do with the intention of, you know, it's it's not only my children and my family watching me, but it's God. You know, it's it's to that point because it'll be hard to come back to this later. Karen, you mentioned that maybe it's different for, for children and a spouse. I think you're absolutely right. And the, the metaphor that was presented to me that made the most sense, both biblically and like, how can I apply this to my life? Is he, he said, you know, picture this, you're on a military mission and your commander comes to you and says, okay, there's two of you I'm sending out on a mission. And then he turns to, to me and said, you, you know that you're the same rank as this other person, right? But when you come back and report, I'm asking you how it went. You are the one who I'm going to hold accountable here, but you're the same rank. And it was kind of that like, Oh wow. Like we are the same rank, but I'm going to be held accountable. Like that's a, that is a, that is a totally different than I'm the boss. It's Mm -hmm. like, no, it's accountable, which is accounting, which is really looking at what I did, which is nothing like, you know, I'm the boss. It's an accolades. Go ahead. It's totally different. Like what you're saying, but it's not just, receiving the praise and the accolades no accountability and responsibility and if things go south i'm responsible that's right and when i heard that i was like oh 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 
It's oh, enough wow. to send chills down your spine. But, mm-hmm. it, you know, and I think, too, it also goes to that point that it isn't like a hierarchy when you're held accountable and responsible. You're using everybody in the team. That's right. For success. And that's where I always look back at Adam and Eve and, and my wife is by my side. And you know what? Every decision I make, I make sure I run it through the other boss. Yep. You know, because this is this is a battle in, you know, and I hate to say just in light of the way our world is going right now, this is a battle that has to be fought on all fronts with all the information possible. And not only am I going to seek that information in prayer, but I'm going to be looking towards my, you know, talking it over with my wife and my family as well to make sure that they're safe. Yeah. And a lot of prayer. I mean, the yep. priest, let's not forget, we're doing a lot of prayer, intercession mm-hmm. prayer, uh, prayer of uh, confession for themselves. Um, this was this was a serious we'll see. We've we've heard um, Aaron's uh, sons, um, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And in case we think that just because somebody is named and given responsibility that they get a pass, that is so not the case. Right. Okay, I think this is a good place to stop for this week, and we will get into these uh, specifics around the priests next week. And uh, well, we'll see how far we go. <laughs> I'm kind of the, past the point of trying to promise how far we're going to go anymore because we lately we just haven't been making it that far, and I think that's okay because I'm not we're not in any hurry to get through stuff, and I think it's really cool and important to uh, try to understand these things. So. We'll read a few ahead, a few chapters, and we'll have notes ready. I would just encourage, I guess I would encourage our listeners, go ahead and read through the whole book of Exodus here and uh, and just keep reviewing it as we go. That's what we're doing. We just yep. we, we keep reading and we keep reviewing it for us. The more you do it, the more we do it, the better uh, understanding we're going to get from it. Yeah, I learn a lot from you guys, just like hearing your perspective on things and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. Likewise. Yeah, mm-hmm. me too. Well, keep, always remember, you can... Uh, reach us at ATTV podcast at the adventure.org you could find adventures through the podcast hmm. you could find adventure through the bible on facebook please be sure to share this podcast with everyone and be sure you subscribe so that you get us each and every week we look forward to talking to you again next week thanks for listening